1: Your host, Andrew Donaldson.
2: This is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, this is a topic that I've been wanting to get into on this program for a long time. It's just a matter of trying to find the right entry point because everybody's met that person. They get super passionate about something that's really, really important, and they blast you with the passion. Then you're like, okay, that's just... I don't want to do that with this because it's way too important and yes this is West Virginia we're going to talk about but this has applicable principles and problems that will go to any state you want to find anywhere Kelly Caseman's with me she's from Think Kids West Virginia we're going to talk about the CPS system in West Virginia a big problem for a long time Kelly thank you so much for the time really appreciate you
1: Uh, thanks for having me
2: okay one of our core principles on this program is Things don't happen in a vacuum, they happen in a sequence. How do we get below the noise in the headlines and find out what's going on? CPS, DHHR, which runs CPS in the state of West Virginia. This is not a one headline, three headline, one year. This is decades of bad management, of unaccountability, of not having transparency. There's bureaucratic problems, there's legal problems this has been a mess for a very long time. We need to frame this as that first and not just go trying to fix one problem at a time, don't we?
1: We do. You know, um, we in many ways should have seen this coming. You know, we're um, a state with high poverty. We're a state with, you know, high prevalence of diseases of despair. And then we had the opioid epidemic unfold. And when that happened, we saw just a surge of kids entering Child Protective Services or CPS and um, we didn't respond quickly and we still are kind of chasing our tails trying to find a way to address the number of kids um, who are in uh, unsafe situations and uh, it has exploded and you know for the last couple of years our state legislature has attempted to respond to it but it's been very piecemeal. It's been with very specific, small legislation. That's not gonna get us where we need to go.
2: Yeah, and anecdotally, I remember being home a couple of years ago for a funeral and I was sitting with somebody I grew up with who's now a judge in you know Southern West Virginia. And he he just looked at me and went, first case is the dad and drugs. The next case is the mom and the drugs. And then the third case is what do I do with the kids? And he just looks at, she's like, what am I supposed to do? We're gonna do a lot of beating up on the system here and it deserves some beating up on it, but there's a lot of people in the system. The system's made up of people. There's a lot of people trying to do their best. There's a lot of people that aren't doing their jobs right. How do we humanize things like the system, the state, CPS? That's just a big faceless bureaucracy, right? We have a hum- human problem here, right? Where we just don't humanize this enough and get to it on that level. Is that a fair way to put this? Yeah.
1: I completely agree. I think that um, the way this narrative has unfolded in the public discourse has been very much on the system and not on the families. And um, I, I think that is primarily because we, you know, there are certain reasons why you don't share The traumatic experiences that kids have right so a number of people who don't work in these systems don't really understand what's going on with these kids and so when you have. uh, Like a story that kind of has brought it to the prominence now of of um, a couple of kids who were found living in a. you know, and essentially in a barn with no running water, in no a bathroom, deprived of basic necessities, um, people start to get a taste of what's really kind of the extreme of what's going on here. And then we, because of, of you know, um, confidentiality, you don't interview the kids, you don't speak to the kids. And then the, the uh, focus really goes on broken systems, which uh, what we're talking about today is child protective services. But we're seeing, because of the drug epidemic, we're seeing a lot of broken systems, public education, healthcare, juvenile justice system, and as you just uh, referenced, the court system. And so instead of us looking at, the people who are trying to do this work on the ground level, we're not interviewing them, we're not talking to them, You know, the, the system doesn't want their CPS workers doing interviews, for example. So it's very hard to articulate on the ground level what needs to happen to ensure that these kids are safe. And so the system itself is very self-protective. And I think that's probably the first step that needs to happen is instead of us saying, well, you know, shrugging and saying the system is doing its best. There's nothing we can do about the prevalence of of addiction. We need to be saying what we're doing isn't working. And so we need to pivot and look at a better uh, a better strategic plan.
2: Yeah, Kelly Caseman, thank kids joining us here. You just mentioned it. The feeders to the system is something that we can address pretty easily because uh, most people have had some kind of contact with those feeders you can't use a judicial system to fix the education system but that's what happens because we're not dealing with the educational issues the legislature can't fix parenting although it likes to think it can and they run on that but they really can't the feeder problems you just mentioned it traumatized kids do traumatized things you have an opioid epidemic well if you traumatize a bunch of kids you've increased their chances of having opioid epidemic you've increased their chances of winding up in the judicial system How do we deal about the feeders to the system, the broken homes, things like that? Because you can't just say the system because you've got these stats and we've been looking at them. The CPS is chronically understaffed. They're chronically underpaid. It's a really, really hard job for the caseworker level. The feeder system is where this needs to be attacked. But that's the thing that people seem to want to deal with the least because that's the messy end of this.
1: I completely agree. I think that we have uh, narrowed our focus too closely on the systems. If you focus on the system too much, all you're gonna do is create a bigger system. So we do more need more CPS workers, but more importantly, we need to find ways to keep Kids and families from being introduced to these systems in the first place. So you want to keep these kids out of the courts. You want to keep them out of CPS. You want to keep them out of foster care. And so we really need to be focusing on prevention. We need to be focusing on um, on parent engagement on that local level. You know, I think that you would agree. I, you know, you grew up. You're born and raised in West Virginia, as am I. And there was a time when there, I. Uh, when I was growing up, that um, communities were more tightly engaged. So, you know, I always say when I got in trouble in town, by the time I got home, um, somebody had called my parents and told them what I was up to. Now we have kids who are incredibly isolated. And um, I think that one of the things that we need to do, particularly with opioid settlement funding, is to funnel that money and ensure that it makes it to the community level and is specific for kids. So they have that one trusted adult that they can talk to. I think that's a great place to start.
2: Yeah, Kelly Caseman joining us. You mentioned the school system. We now have problems with abuse in the school system, though. Mm-hmm. We have this terrible story of the, the teacher duct taping children. Look, my mom was a special educator. Both my parents were career educators and West Virginia retired teachers. My mom was a special educator <laughs> starting in the late 60s. They were the pioneers of this stuff, the stuff they had to go through just to get a classroom space the education system is supposed to be the safe place for children, especially children coming from bad homes. That's supposed to be where they can get a decent meal and some attention and some love and whatever, but we can't even get that part of the right. So much of the reporting system is supposed to go through the education system because they see those kids more than just about anybody else, especially school-aged children. The education component and their relationship with the CPS system that's a broken relationship on a couple of levels and that's a force multiplier to the bad in this, both the CPS system and the education system. Isn't it
1: It is, you know, a couple of years ago we held a, um, uh, a focus group with uh, school staff, school-based health center staff and CPS workers. And it was clear to me, and this was just in one County. And as you know, in West Virginia, everything really happens on the County level when it comes to uh, public education. And so we were, trying to find a way to better communicate between CPS and school staff and the healthcare staff. And there was a lot of animosity there. One of the recommendations we make at Think Kids to try and address child maltreatment is that we really need um, on the governor's level, a governor cabinet staffer who oversees the, you know, develops a strategic plan and oversees child maltreatment. So there can be someone overseeing all these systems and can force collaboration. And so this animosity between CPS and school staff on the local level, um, somebody has to say, you know, enough. You you have to collaborate for the sake of the kids. And when that doesn't happen, um, you'll hear many teachers say, I called CPS repeatedly and no one ever gets back to me and that should just that should be unacceptable. You know, that is a problem that we've we've seen bubbling up for many years now and that definitely needs addressed.
2: And let's be honest here the reason there's animosity is because those <laughs> systems feel like they're fighting over funding. So it becomes a funding and a bureaucratic fight instead of hey, if the education system's broken, that makes the CPS system worse and if the CPS system's broken, that makes the education system worse. How do we have that conversation? Because when you're talking policy and trying to get the people focused back into policy, which is a lot of the core issue with something like CPS, it just always goes to funding instead of, hey, preventative funding is always cheaper than fix-it-later funding. And if they're not working together and fighting over the funding on the front end, these kids have no chance. The teachers have no chance. The CPS workers have no chance that's the conversation we really need to be having because that's a practical fixable thing that you could fix legislatively or with regulatory action, but we don't get to that conversation because everybody's fighting over the money, right? That's just the honest truth. Uh,
1: I completely agree with you. I think that um, that's one of the reasons we need somebody in the governor's cabinet because we have a finite uh, amount of resources in this state and we have all of these systems Uh, vying for funding when they go to the state legislature so almost every year, whether it be um, kinship care, foster care, CPS, uh, their leadership goes to the uh, legislature and says, you know, we're trying here, here are our problems and it can be fixed with more money that we just don't have enough money to give to every system what they need to be doing is collaborating and pooling their resources together. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. So um, we have given, uh, the legislature has allocated more and more funding to schools for counselors, for psychologists, very important, but you and I both know that uh, enrollment is down Uh, in our schools in West Virginia because we're losing population, particularly younger people. And as that money goes, as the population goes down, money goes down, and then um, the first to go are those support staffers. And so it makes much more sense to have a state uh, school policy to ensure that there are referrals to the healthcare system if a child needs help. Every child should have an annual well child exam, and that is a perfect place to, uh, when the child is examined to see if there are you know, signs of abuse, but a number of our kids aren't even making it to annual well child exams. And so there, is, there are plenty of ways that our systems could be collaborating that would make the funding more effective, but they have to be collaborating in order for that to happen. And that's not happening uh, uh, you know, to, a, to the degree we need in this state.
2: Yeah, Kaylee Caseman joining us. ThinkKidsWestVirginia.org. She also wrote an op-ed that we're going to link to in the Substack notes. Make sure you read that whole piece. One thing you're talking about there is, and what's missing on some of this, and you've been talking about this in social media and your writing, is there's a big accountability problem here because we 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 know the hard way. Money alone doesn't fix it. Doesn't fix education. Doesn't fix poverty. Doesn't fix CPS because you got to have accountability where the money goes and did it get used for what it's supposed to get used for. The DHHR, and I know it's getting to change now because it's getting to, we're going to make it a three headed monster instead of one headed monster. We'll see if that makes any difference. But there has been an accountability issue for a long, long time, not just on, well, we have privacy of the kids. We get that, how the upper ups do things how the supervision's done things, how the case management is done. You've had good case managers just throw up their hands like I just can't do my job effectively and you can't get good people into those jobs like you really need them. There's a huge accountability. part. People, we need to understand, CPS, you know, we don't think of it like the DMV, but this is the DMV except it's in charge of kids' health care. It's still a bureaucracy. We have to have some accountability here, and that's a huge problem.
1: Yeah, it's it's a problem on on a number of levels. So, as I'm sure you know, we have a um, a relationship with the Department of Justice. That in 2015, they um, they wrote a letter to then Governor Tomlin saying that we were non-compliant with the um, ADA because we had too many kids going out of state. To access mental health services that was directly correlated with CPS. And so we have that case that is still ongoing. We have a class action lawsuit of kids who have aged out of the foster care system. And so there are many things at play that make our state system less willing to um, share that. share that data that we need to be transparent to make it more of a collaborative effort to ensure that these kids aren't falling through, you know, the gaping holes in our safety net.
2: What are the holes in the safety net? Because I say that all the time, too. It's like, well, kids fall through the cracks. Well, the cracks aren't artificial cracks. They're things that didn't get taken care of that should have gotten done. So what are the cracks? Because people, again, you know, they'll just go, well, funding and there's not enough workers. Okay, we all know that. What are the other problems, though, besides just the communication and the lack of services? You know, why doesn't Calhoun County have certain services that Berkeley County has or Canal County has and Gilmer doesn't? There's a lot of levels to those cracks, and they're not all the same for all 55 counties or for the whole state or for that matter, for the whole country, are they?
1: No, I I think one of the biggest problems that we have in the state is that um, we know that there are gaps in the safety net and we have not spent time trying to find where those gaps are and prioritize them. So some counties, Fayette County, for example, Um, has a variety of different services, uh, preventive services, for example, uh, that are crucial to keeping kids from being introduced to the CPS system in the first place, while other counties don't have them. You know, we're one of those states that really prizes uh local autonomy and so we but you know data collection is so much easier now and we really should be looking at collecting data making it more transparent as to where these gaps are and then addressing them and that goes back to like i said a state strategic plan you've got to have all of the key players at the table and you have to force collaboration and instead of us trying to look at this problem as a one and done legislative session where a couple of laws are passed, you have to look at it as it being a comprehensive problem that's going to take years to fix. And so, you know, there's there's a foster care dashboard here in West Virginia where you can see the vacancies in uh, the CPS system, um, but you also have to look at um, high turnover in those roles um, and how much training, you know, are we are we, Um, compromising on the training of staff just to get warm bodies, uh, you know, in those places. And so there's a lot that we could be doing collectively to address some of these issues with CPS. But the first thing that has to happen is that um, our state health department needs to be more transparent. And um, we need to collectively uh, agree that what we're doing as a state isn't working.
2: Yeah, Kelly Cashman joining us. One of the tropes, of course, is, and you just mentioned it, it, was people from the outside will go, Well, of course, it's West Virginia. It's the poverty or it's the opioid credit. Okay, we know there's a poverty problem in West Virginia. We noticed. Uh, we know there's an opioid. You just mentioned Fayette County. I went to church in Fayette County growing up. I know that area far too well. Uh, I know the problems in Fayette County. What you're speaking of, though, go, go to Berkeley County, which was in the news last week, um, in the legislature for that matter. The backlog of cases in Berkeley County, this is the second largest county in the state. It's one of the more affluent ones. This is the D.C. exurbs Martinsburg area for people that aren't familiar. This is not southern West Virginia, coal fields, Christmas and Appalachia stuff. This is where they had to put in zoning laws to not grow so fast because they had double digit growth. And they can't get this right. What does that say about the whole of state approach you're saying is like, yeah, sure. Fayette County's having problems. McDowell County's having problems. The classic Coalfield counties. But Berkeley County, that's supposed to be the superstar future of the state. They can't get this right either. And you have this judge testifying in front of the legislator like we can't get this right, begging for help. If you actually listen to how he was saying it. And I appreciated him doing that. That shows you how deep and how broad the issue is to me. You know,
1: Berkeley, you know. One of the the challenges they have, of course, is that people can make more money if they go to any of the states uh, around, you know, the Eastern Panhandle. But, you know, a point I want to make: a few years ago, we so we've done a number of policy roundtables over the last ten years. Ten years ago, if you look at the um, National Child Abuse and Neglect Data System uh, numbers for, say, 2011 to 2015 we didn't have, we weren't number one for child maltreatment. You know, we didn't have the highest rate of child victims. We didn't have the highest rate of first time victims. That really has happened as the opioid uh, crisis has unfolded. And so I think that we need to look at it in the context of this is, this goes hand in hand with the drug crisis. Um, And I think that we need to use look at the opioid settlement funding on that community level and see how we can plug that funding in to address some of these issues but back to the point of um funding i you know i really worry that this kind of drumbeat for more funding more funding and that when there's no accountability um it is is just going to be throwing throwing funding at the wall to see what sticks when you don't have a plan in place and that that is the biggest problem that we have is we're not collectively working for a a plan and then to look at, at the evaluation. So we're not coming at this with real strategy. We're kind of coming at this with throwing our hands in the air and saying, you know, this is, this is unwinnable unless we get more money. The money's not coming other than the opioid settlement funding. So where do we go from there?
2: You brought up the opioid. I I've done media for the last few years since I've been publicly writing and doing media stuff. And I always bring up when people talk about the opioid crisis, like, yeah, the opioid crisis is terrible, but it also revealed a lot of cracks that were already there. You know, West Virginia state government has not been super functional for pretty much ever, frankly. Um, The opioid crisis revealed problems that were already there with poverty, with the declining demographics, with the state government, with the allocation of services, with, you know, some of the generational trauma in, in West Virginia, especially places like the coal fields. How do we talk about that part of it as well? Because when you wrote your piece in West Virginia Watch, I subscribe, you should too. They do excellent work. I'm just looking at the statue layout here with this CPS state. West Virginia has the longest response time anyone in the country, three times the national average. Highest rate of children who receive an investigative or alternative response, three times the national average. Highest rate of child victims in the count country at 17 per thousand children, which is twice the national. Like and then you ask the questions, this is all Googleable. Why didn't anybody know it? Well, because we're numb to statistics, right? right. Put the personal face on that. Compared to what we were just talking about, because if you're going to have a leadership approach and a people approach, it can't just be the stats because people's eyes just roll in the back of their heads, millions of dollars, billions of dollars, thousands of kids. How do you put a face on that stat to get back that empathy you were writing about in your piece that we've lost because it just kind of goes over our heads and we just don't hear it anymore.
1: So I think one of the important things that we need to be doing is having community meetings and then allow People to come up and share their stories because we don't, unless it's this egregious story, like you know, the Ray Lynn, um, uh, Ray Lee, I'm sorry, Browning story, you know, kind of these egregious stories that make national headlines. People don't know what's going on. Let me give you an example that I, I had referenced before. You know, we've held these round, round tables around the state, and probably about seven years ago five to seven years ago, we had a principal from Boone County who came up to the microphone and in tears and said, um, you know, she was an elementary school principal and she said, we're having kids who are coming into our school, starting kindergarten, who are not potty trained and are nonverbal. So um, she said, we don't have the services for them and we're probably going to pass them on to first grade because we know that there's a handful of kids who are gonna be coming in behind them. And she was begging for help. You know, that is powerful. That's the sort of thing that we need to hear as a community to force change on the state level. But those stories really stay squelched for a variety of reasons. I've heard from a number of people who have interacted with CPS who are afraid to share their stories publicly because they're afraid of retaliation from the systems, so I think that that's one of the first things that we need to keep in check, and that is retaliation from the systems that are, you know, concerns of people knowing too many of these terrible stories. But if we don't get these stories out, you know, we have to have the the uh, community, the you know, kind of the public will to force change. And so uh, it, it's not in our best interest to keep these stories quiet. We need to ensure that they're being shared on the community and state level.
2: Yeah, Kelly Casman joining us. Her piece is at West Virginia Watch. We're going to link to it. Make sure you read the entire piece. Also got a couple of links in there, like the maltreatment report for 2021. You'll want to read those stats for yourself. You hit on your piece when you're writing about this. And, and I think this is the really important thing is you have to have a mixture of empathy We're already really good at outrage, especially in the social media age, right? Like we we can put something real hot and heavy on top of that retweet or that Facebook post about how awful something is. We do outrage really good. We don't do really good about channeling outrage and empathy to actually getting things done. You mentioned having like meetings and things like that. Obviously, you're in the policy world, so you do some things that maybe the average person can't social media is an amazing tool though and we don't use that for this and it's not just showing those horror stories like the shed story and now we have the pictures that just came out this morning of what that shed looked like you can share that stuff but you can also share like hey we're going to have this piece of legislation moving hey we have this committee hearing that's boring stuff but if people can put it on their social media that's an accessible piece of policy and advocacy that people can do not just sharing that stuff that's sensationalized, but sharing the stuff that matters like, Hey, here's this funding bill that's coming up. Hey, here's this CPA. Here's a good idea. How about a CPS worker that did a great job? We could maybe praise some of them. That'd probably do some good. Give us some stuff like that. Just practical that folks can just do even just from their phone that might make a bit of a difference here.
1: Oh, wow. Gosh, they can do a number of things. I think that they can pressure and this could be in letters, definitely social media pressure uh, the, uh, governor to create a cabinet role for you know an office of child health and then you can pressure all of your state systems again your healthcare system talk to your pediatrician um, your public ed talk to your local superintendent your local principal your teachers um, talk to cps and foster care if you're connected with them uh, your court system, talk to your local judges and say, you know, we've had enough, we have a problem with child maltreatment and more needs to be done. Um, I think that what we have right now is almost a shell game of people and, you know, policymakers not wanting to say that they have a responsibility. To address this issue, we all have a responsibility to address this issue. So they can hold these people to the, you know, feet to the fire and say, what are you doing? How are you addressing it on a local level? How are you addressing it on the state level? And then um, instead of just blaming the systems, which you're exactly right, there are good people in it, but the systems are very slow and not reactive, um, to forcing. At least a, a collective agreement that we, as a state, do not um, accept the rate of child maltreatment. We don't want to be known as, you know, the highest rate of child abuse in the country. And then uh, force at least a public dialogue. I think that's really where we need to start. You know, people don't have to become really savvy on policy issues. What they need to do is channel that anger to force people who are in the high places to respond and say, we will do something. We're certainly going to do more than what we're willing to do right now.
2: Yeah, Kelly Caseman joining us. There's there's a lot of layers to this that we could get into, but there's there's two that I want to highlight, um, not just policy-wise, but just kind of human interest-wise. We've got all the data in the world now. Two things that we have to address beyond just the school system, and let's be honest, policy-wise, a lot of people just think the schools are going to fix everything and they pop out an 18-year-old fully functional adult. That's not how that works, right? Wellness and mental health for adolescents, those two things together, both their physical welfare, things like nutrition, health care, things like that. And we can have a debate about how you do health care and things like that. We can have a debate over school lunches and things like this. That health care and mental health component, when you're talking about the opioid crisis, when you're talking about child poverty, when you start talking about traumatized kids, there's no way you're going to fix these problems unless you have a mental health care component to supplement what the school system and CPS or whoever else is trying to do anything. If we don't do something about adolescent mental health care. We're just going to kind of be throwing stuff up into the wind here. That's how I feel about it. I've had some experience with this. There's just not enough of it to go around. It's a rising problem, especially since the COVID, where we decided we're just going to traumatize. Good, bad, or indifferent, maybe we had to do some of it, but we traumatized a generation of kids. We just did. That's just the facts. Right. Unless we do something with the mental health care component to go alongside and integrate it with education and these other programs, we're setting ourselves up for failure, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. We um, at Think Kids have been working on this. Uh, you know, it's not it's not just a West Virginia problem, the lack of mental health care for for uh, the pediatric population, particularly adolescents, is a national problem. It's certainly one here in West Virginia. And again, we're not coming at it in a very strategic way. So there are places where public ed is working with the healthcare system, but you know, <laughs> We, we know that there are healthcare, uh, mental health care facilities in the state. We know that there's been an escalation of adolescents who have shown up in our emergency rooms over the past couple of years. Um, in mental health crises, and we don't have no place to send them. And so we really need to get better at assessing where the services are and if they're accessible. I mean, if even if a mental health care facility has a bed available, if a child needs it, but it's 50 miles away and the family lacks uh, transportation, how do you get the child there? You know, how do you ensure that the parents can visit the child? So they, again, we 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 know that there are gaps in that safety net. We don't know are Um, and we should be having more conversations about this lack we should be talking about the assessment assessing services we should be looking at full continuum of care Um, and then we should be prioritizing and addressing them collectively not just the system but communities as well because you know. Fayette. I'll go back to Fayette County. Different counties uh, have different priorities, and some counties really do prioritize. They they recognize that you know we our communities have deteriorated deteriorated because of the drug epidemic, and they've tried to respond. and They've got some really good things going on, like the ICE model. I don't know if you know about that, but you know it's. If, if that can be replicated, but the problem is we're not having these dialogues of what's working on that community level so they can be replicated in places around the state.
2: Yeah. And there's different ways to do it, too. You, you mentioned Fayette County's done this. Nicholas County did this about a year ago. They started trying to integrate um, drug rehab and the CPS system with the probationary system. And the idea was, well, you put your family back as part of your probationary system and as part of getting your rehab done. And it's very small numbers. I think they had like four, five, six people graduate the program. But when you got, you know, some of those 2,000 people, five, six families, that's a, that's an impactful thing. So there's different things to do it, but there's got to be a will. And the biggest problem I've seen, you know, I'm in my early 40s now. There's not a lot of consistency on these. Pro- you get a good program and it does okay for a year or two or a cycle two or a funding cycle usually is what ends up having legislation. How do we get consistency? I know this all goes back to leadership, whether it's political leadership, community leadership, but consistency is so important on all of these matters because when you're dealing with traumatized people, people with addiction issues, traumatized kids, the education system, that's a big problem. We don't have any consistency.
1: You're right. So a number of these programs that pop up uh, for better or worse around the state are grant funded. And um, you don't see any evaluation data from them. And then uh, the good ones, the bad ones, they fade away. And so I I think we should, uh, one of the first steps we need to take is to ensure any program that's funded by the state that there's transparency and their evaluation data is um, shared online. And if a program isn't, successful, then it should continue to be funded and successful programs should receive some seed funding to ensure that they uh, are sustained and replicated. And that is one of the big problems. Again, it goes back to leadership. You know, we we have to ensure that our systems aren't self-protective and are more focused on uh, the kids and their needs. And so you do hear about great programs. Nobody's assessing them. Nobody knows you know, why they fade away and more of that data needs to be shared.
2: Yeah, Kelly Caseman joining us. You ended your piece with something that I think is important. We are in an election season, which seems to be constant anymore. But you said every politician on the campaign trail should be asked, what are you going to do about child abuse and neglect victims? Um, CPS is a government program. That means our elected leaders are in charge of it, the legislator, the governor, whoever they appoint to do certain things. I think that's just the core truth of this, though, is – elected leaders they got a lot on their plate this is one of those things they want to fix enough to just get it out of the way so that they don't have to deal with it and i'm not even being mean about it that's just the nature of the beast this is something that we have to we the people the normal folks the non-elected folks this is something we're just going to have to try to make noise on and that's the only way you're really going to get to see any movement isn't it
1: i agree it you know it's it's uh Really unfortunate, but true that almost everybody running for uh, elected office will use kids as as a prop. Right. So they say, you know, I care about the kids. I'm going to do something. But once they get into office and they see just how complex and how difficult it can be, uh, you know, getting stonewalled by systems, um, they give up. You know, I've had legislators say to me before, you know, I don't want to talk about foster care this year. I don't want to talk about CPS this year. We talked about it last year. We can't talk about it every year. Of course, you need to talk about it every year until the problem is fixed. You you should be required to talk about it every year. And so we really do need more people, like I said, holding their feet to the fire. People do need to be taking to their social media and talking more about this, making an issue so it doesn't just bubble up every few years and people just seem surprised that it's happening. You know, if you if you do a Google search of West Virginia kids on a daily basis, you see that this isn't, you know, uh, um, an issue that happens once every few years. It's happening weekly. And so, you know, if, if that angers you, which it should anger everyone, you know, don't just get mad about it. Do something about it.
2: Yeah. Kelly Caseman joining us. We're going to link to her Think peace. I'm also going to link to those news reports we talked about. That'll all be in the Substack notes, hotel.substack.com. It'll also be on our social media. You just said it, so let folks know where they can follow and keep up with you. Let them know what Think West Virginia kids and others are doing about this thing. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on the program again, because we're going to keep talking about this very important issue, because I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon.
1: Uh, So our website is thinkkidswv.org. We're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and we have a monthly newsletter and we recap all uh, news articles around kids and uh, kids health in West Virginia in it. And I highly recommend that you subscribe to that newsletter and then you can get a really good picture of what's going on with kids health around the state
2: be important too as we get ready to go do another legislative session too they'll be updating on that thing they also have other stuff on there like child hunger mental health things like this there's a great piece in there about uh, grandparents taking care of kids we didn't have time to get into that but it's a very important issue kelly caseman thank you so much for the time today really appreciate it ma'am
1: thank you andrew
2: yes ma'am all the music on her is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com Folks, if you've listened to the Heard Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from DC and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom. Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. They got over a hundred episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.